Great fun. <coughs> fun? Did everyone find it fun? Good. Are we and are we all caught up to um, Canto Four through Canto Four? How long did it take you? Does that mean it wasn't that hard? Good. All right. Did everyone find? <laughs> you look dubious. Did everyone? Sean, did you find it not that hard? Uh, it took a while just to like work for some words, but overall, it wasn't like that uh, hard to read. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I think, it, you know, let, let me just say again, I think you should try to read it um, faster rather than slower. Um, that is that it's um, uh, okay if you're not quite sure what's going on in a line. It's not, no one has ever accused Spencer of being, uh, of saying things too quickly. Um, of, of being too short in what he said. And what happens is you really do have this total immersion way of learning it. Okay, I want to say something about the Spencerian stanza, uh, which is the thing that Spencer invented. Um, this actually is, connects to the question of how to read it, which is that this stanza that Spencer invented is a stanza that once you get a little bit sensitized to the rhythm of the stanza, you also get sensitized to the rhythm of Spencer's thought. And um, it's always the case that the way we learn any language through immersion, not if you take a class in it, but uh, the way you learn your first language and the way you learn a language um, in, a, in a culture um, that, has, that speaks a different language, through immersion, through listening and watching, is by getting a sense of the rhythm of what someone is saying, um, because that's almost universal. That is, responses to things, uh, reactions to things, utterances that are provoked in reaction to something, is that something where we can hear the rhythm and then we can figure out what people are saying on the basis, first of all, of the speeding up and slowing down rhythm of what they're saying. This is a fact of human language. This is a fact of how we learn languages. And the same is true with poetry. So does anyone know the rhyme scheme of Spencerian Sansa? Can anyone say it offhand without looking? Um, huh. um, a, B, A, B, B, C, B, C? Something like that? Yes, BC something. Um, what's that last something like that, though? You did eight lines and then it's something like that. Um, they're nine lines long. Yes. C. <laughs> Good. <laughs> C? That was easy. Um, yeah, the, go ahead. Ten, ten beats except for the last line. Ten syllables, five beats. Yeah, ten syllables except for the last line, which is 12. Right. So did everyone have a sense of that? That is that if you if uh, we'll kill two birds with one stone by looking uh, straight at, I don't know, what, well, why don't we just look at the first stanza of Canto One? Um, a gentle knight was pricking on the plain, he clad in mighty arms and silver shield. Um, does anyone have any trouble with that why, he clad? Um, was that something that you feel that you now have a handle on. That's the kind of thing that you would quickly pick up, even if I didn't draw your attention to it. He clad, he clapped. What does the Y mean? Do you know? And, Sorry? And, and? No. 
It's uh, if he, that's that would be the Spanish Y. Um, if someone often you'll see it as a single word, eclept. Um, he was eclept Archimago, or a great villain eclept Archimago. Okay, E is the um, past participle in Middle and Old English. So eclad means cladded, literally. So when you have a Y as a prefix to a verb, what it actually, in modern English, it would be an ED suffix. You will quickly pick this up. Don't take a note on this. Don't write it down. You don't need to. Learn the language as a first language, not as a second one. It's English. It really is. Um, but that's what eclept. Eclept means called. Um, eclad means clad in. For Spencer's audience, this already feels kind of weird. It's not, you won't find, I think there's only one um, moment in Shakespeare where Shakespeare uses a Y prefix like that. This is very, very rusty, antiquated English that Spencer is bringing back. Chaucer used it all the time. Spencer is bringing it back. Um, it's like when you go to some twee town and you go to ye old um, ice cream shoppy. Um, and you know the Y-E, is, it's, that's, that's a mispronunciation. It's not pronounced ye, although the owners of ye old ice cream shoppy will tell you it is. It's actually pronounced the. Um, that Y is, uh, is actually a TH sound. Um, it's called a thorn. Um, but they, and it shouldn't look quite like a Y, but it does. Um, so eclad here just means dressed in. So a gentle knight was pricking on the plain, eclad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dints of deep wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet arms till that time did he never wield. His angry steed did chide his foaming bit, as much disdaining to the curb to yield. Full jolly knight he seemed, and fair did sit, as one for nightly jousts and fierce encounters fit. So um, that's a very good introductory stanza. Um, I'll just mention that there's a little bit of a hat tip here to Chaucer. That is, has anyone had to memorize the opening of the Canterbury Tales? You have? Can you do that? Can you do it? Oh, God. No, then don't. Um, <laughs> it begins, um, one that Aprile with the surest sorta, the drucht of March hath pierced to the rota. Those are the famous first two lines. Um, then nature, Chaucer says, pricks people in their hearts. And that word pricks um, is, is a very famous word in the opening of Chaucer. It's semi-obscene, as it always is in English poetry. Um, Pricking on a horse means um, riding quickly because you're spurring the horse. But the word prick is really never an innocent word in 15th and 16th and 17th century poetry. There's always a little bit of an elbowing there. Um, as you will see, Book One of the Fairy Queen, well, as you will see, every single book of the Fairy Queen is massively about sex. Um, book One of the Fairy Queen not being an exception to that. Um, here it's more by way of a hat tip to Chaucer. Chaucer's famous word, so pricketh him natured in ear courages, that is, so nature pricks them in their hearts. Um, nature is causing for the fertility of the spring to come to them in April. And the idea that fertility should be something that pricks you with desire 
that's, uh, that's um, uh, as I say, a kind of raised eyebrow pun in Chaucer. He wants people to giggle a little nervously about it. Spencer thought Ch Chaucer was the greatest English poet, which he was um, at the time, and Spencer is always tipping his hat to Chaucer. So the very first line of the Fairy Queen is a kind of allusion to the beginning of the Canterbury Tales. I just This is a parenthetical remark, but a neat one, or it's a neat fact. So a gentle knight was pricking on the plain, he clad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dints of deep woods did remain the cruel marks of many a bloody field. First four lines is a standard quatrain, A, B, A, B. And then we get a kind of summing up, which is frequently the case, with a couplet. So, yet arms till that time did he never wield. That could be a standard five-line stanza that rhymes A, B, A, B, B. And the last line in that kind of five-line stanza, A, B, A, B, B, almost always is a commentary on the first four lines. I'm not talking about Spencer, I'm talking about English poetry. It almost always is a commentary on the first four lines, and often a change in direction or a change of understanding of what those first four lines are. So imagine that you're a completely naive reader of the Fairy Queen, reading it for the first time and not looking ahead at all. That is, there's no such reader in the world. And you don't even notice that the stanza goes on. But you read the first five lines and you will think to yourself, but in fact some part of your brain will say, ah, five-line stanza, and a good one. Because what we have is this knight, he's riding on the plane, he's wearing this armor. We think we know what we're talking about. We're talking about a knight who's been in a lot of battles already. Um, he's in mighty arms, he has a silver shield, and there are lots of wounds, dints of wounds, on his armor. So this is a knight who's been around the block a couple of times, or been around the castle a couple of times. And then, line five, yet arms till that time did he never wield. So we get now a typical, the first four lines set the scene, and then the fifth line tells you something that you couldn't have known from the first four lines, and change changes things. Yet, arms till that time did he never wield. But then the stanza goes on. His angry steed did chide his foaming bit, as much disdaining to the curb to yield. Full jolly night he seemed and fair did sit, as one for nightly jousts and fierce encounters fit. Now, if you look at the nine line Spencerian stanza. The way Spencer handles it almost all the time, I mean, he has unbelievable variety in it, but the basic template in which this variety, um, uh, on which this variety plays, is here's the rhyme scheme A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, something. Oh, C. Um, and what Spencer is doing is he is thinking in terms of a five-line onset. A, B, A, B, B is a kind of conclusiveness to it. Um, the most likely place in the stanza for a sentence to end is here not invariably and probably not a majority of times, but more likely than any other, except of course for here. Almost every stanza 
in the first three books of the Fairy Queen. It's not true of the second three books, but almost every stanza, I don't know, if, I think there's only one exception in the first three books, um, ends the sentence with the end of the stanza. In the <coughs> second half of the Fairy Queen, you'll see that there's sometimes an overflow into the next stanza. Um, but sentences always end here and frequently end here. Then after you get this kind of feel of a conclusion, it turns out, but it's not a conclusion. And Spencer then thinks in a second and overlapping structure, which is B, C, B, C, C. So what you get is a mirrored structure. The first half of the stanza is A, B, A, B, B. And then if you were only to look at lines 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, at those five lines, because 5 through 9, you understand, is five lines, not four. Simple arithmetic. If you look at lines 5 through 9, those lines, the structure, the rhyme scheme, just looking at those, is A, B, A, B, B. Do you understand why I'm saying that, even though I wrote B, C, B, C, C? It's B, B, like the A rhymes of the second half of the stanza, and C, 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 or like the B rhymes of the second half of the stanza. So we get this wonderful symmetry, which is the first five lines have an A, B, A, B, B stanza. It's A, B, A, B, B rhyme scheme. And then the second five lines also have an A, B, A, B, B rhyme scheme. And there's one line, the very center. Here's one, two, three, four, center. And then five, six, seven, eight. That center line is the end of a first five-line sequence, the beginning of a second five-line sequence. It does double duty. And the way to think of it, I think, a helpful way to think of it, is that it's being a kind of spring for the stanza. It's as though the stanza compresses from the first line to the fifth line and then expands. It's all pushed into a spring at line five, and that's where the stanza turns. And then it expands and it ends in the last line. And the last line... Um, Actually, this should be 6, 7, 8, 9, obviously. Center is 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. The last line is what is unlike every other line in the stanza. A gentle knight was pricking on the plane. That's iambic pentameter. Da 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 da. The last line has is a hexameter. It's 12, sometimes more, but the general. Um, the general rule is it's 12 syllables long. It has six iambic feet instead of five. How many people feel like comfortable talking about iambic pentameter? Um, anyone not? Okay, good. So an iambic foot, you know, is da-da. Um, and the last line is what's called an Alexandrine. The reason it's called an Alexandrine is that um, it came into general usage in a medieval French poet, poem um, about the life of Alexander the Great. So people, if you talk about Spenserian stanzas in English, you talk about Alexandrines in French because they are actually the meter of the poem about Alexander. That was originally um, how that meter was defined, um, the meter of the poem about Alexander. So. 
what that last line does in every stanza is it gives it a greater conclusion. That is, the couplet, the C couplet at the end of the stanza has more of a conclusive force than the B couplet in the middle of the stanza. So even though the stanza itself breaks in two in this really interesting and overlapping way, you really know you're at the end of the stanza when you get to the longer line. The longer line has a conclusive feel. So, as one for nightly jousts and fierce encounters fit. Um, oh, look at, look at uh, the, the uh, ninth line of the second stanza. Yet nothing did he dread, but ever was Edrad. So what does Edrad mean there? Dreaded. Dreaded, exactly. Um, so there's another example of that why. Um, what you will frequently find if you're doing nuts and bolts, kind of reverse engineering of Spencer, is that in most, that Spencer really does think in iambic lines. And in most of the, uh, I mean in pentameter lines, in most of the hexameter, in most of the last lines, you can usually figure out the word that you could take out of it to make it the pentameter line that is its base. So in the first one, you could, you could have as one for jousts and fierce encounters fit. And you can feel um, the way it's knightly is added there to make it an Alexandrian. Of course, knightly should be there. It's not like, oh, you don't really need knightly. Yeah, you do need knightly. Um, but, you, but you will almost always find a two-syllable word that can be taken out of the line just from where it is, and you get a pentameter line. Yet nothing did he dread, but ever was he dread, but yet nothing did he dread, but was he dread. Um, uh, yeah. Maybe not, the, it, the third one is a little bit harder. Upon his foe, a dragon horrible and stern. You really need the dragon um, there, but that's sort of the two-syllable word that that line is organized around. Yeah. Uh, question. Um, just uh, regarding the, the, the why, uh, as, uh, as saying, uh, so for example, Idrad is dreaded. Uh, is there any relation to, um, I'm thinking Aramaic has a similar structure where you can take the last the first letter and put it at the end and you have uh, it's the same meaning and it transfers from Hebrew it's the same meaning but it also takes it to, to a past tense or it actually gives it an article I guess mm -hmm. so you can say instead of um, the uh, you, instead of saying um, you know the people it's people uh, mm -hmm. uh, and or I don't, know, I don't know how it deals with tenses but it kind of throws it around by replacing the beginning and the end of the word yeah, I, there, word order and syllable order will will um, often matter. Um, this isn't a switch, though. It's the way Old English worked was you indicated a participle at the start of a word. So it's not that in sort of standard Old English it would be, um, but ever was dratty. Um, it's in modern English that we think of the... If you think about it, you know how, how when you're learning a foreign language and you say, why do they have the words in those order? Why, you know, everyone, the speakers of those languages must have to rearrange the words in their heads. Um, and that's a very naive view of learning um, a, a, a foreign language. But the basic idea, um, what can show you it's naive, is that someone learning English might say, how was I supposed to know that was a past tense? How can you understand 
English when you don't even find out that the word is a past tense till you get to its last syllable. There I thought it was all a present tense, and then, Ed? Oh, no, I have to completely rethink that. You don't. Um, but it would make more sense, if you think about it, to say past tense dread. That is, warn you that it's a past tense with, the, with a prefix rather than with a suffix. And that is how Old English worked with the Y prefix. So Y is always a prefix. It's never a suffix. And it's just a prefix meaning past participle. Um, so it, it, anyhow, it's something that you'll, you'll process very, very quickly. Um, okay, can someone plot summarize? Or do you have a question? Uh, I yeah. know. I just wanted to say that um, the times when you can't uh, withdraw one of the IMs from the Alexandrine, you can usually uh, substitute a three-syllable word for one-syllable word, like file instead. Uh-huh. Okay, you mean substitute one yeah. syllable for three? You mean ho instead of horrible? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so a dragon, foul, um, and stern. Nice. Yeah. That's right. I mean, the, what you're saying, which I think is right, and this is always fun to, to reverse engineer, is you're saying the trace of composition um, is in the word horrible. Um, but we can also turn that around and say the really great thing, and Spencer, as, as he gets better at this, which he does very quickly, um, you can say one of the great things about the Alexandrine is that's where you can fit long words in. Um, that's where you can um, pause to say something really unexpected that iambic pentameter often can't say. Um, a friend of mine said, he, I, I was immediately found counterexample, so I was, I was very pleased with myself, but he was pissed off at me. <laughs> um, but he heard a lecture um, by Alan Mandelbaum, who uh, those of you who took English um, or Humanities 10A will know is one of the translators of the Aeneid and also one of the translators of... Of the Metamorphosis and also of Dante, um, and Mandelbaum claimed that the word disobedience in um, in Paradise Lost, the first line of Paradise Lost, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, um, that that's the only example in all of English poetry of a four-syllable word at the very center of a line, of man's first disobedience and the fruit. So it's three, four, three. Um, and he was very proud of this little factoid, which turned out to be really a Fox News kind of factoid, raised to the level of um, of great poetry, um, because there there are many examples. But I think I've probably only come up with about fifteen or twenty since the time. So you know, one twenty, more or less the same. Um, but the point is, it's not that easy to get a four-syllable or even a three-syllable word into iambic pentameter. Um, but if you have another foot to work with, um, that's where you're going to um, backload or um, the, those words when you want to get those words into it. Okay, can someone start plot summarizing? Can we start plot summarizing? Yeah. So just the, just the first canto? Sure. Right. Um, so it starts in medias res, and the Red Cross Knight and Una, or Truth, are walking around. What does Una mean? One. One. Yes. Yeah. So she, um, just to know, she is the one truth. In fact, the one true church is, um, uh, or the one true faith is how to understand her. If you want to understand her as by the numbers as you can, um, it's much better to understand her as a character, but a character who has this name as some indication of what she's like, what she's loyal to. 
um, what we should be loyal to if we like Una. Okay, so go on. So the Red Cross Knight and Una. So they're wandering around, and I forget whether either they're looking for the dragon or they get lost. But they stumble onto this dragon's den, Dragon Error. Um, what do you think Error stands for? Error. Good. Yes. <laughs> yes. Error is represents error. Good. Go on. Um, and it's a really weird looking dragon because it's like half lizard, half woman. Um, and the dragon lives in this really big cave with all these blood sucking young of hers. Um, and so the Red Cross Knight uh, gets in a fight with her and kills the dragon. And the dragon's young eat the dragon in this really creepy scene. Um, so that's a good thing. Yeah. And so they get out of the cave and they're wandering back and then they get lost and this kindly old hermit takes them in, except that the kindly old hermit is uh, this sorcerer named Urchimago. Um, and Urchimago is trying to separate them or something. And he first tries to tempt the Red Cross Knight with a sprite who looks like Luna, but the Red Cross Knight is like, whatever. Um, and goes back to sleep. And then the sorcerer makes two other sprites look like Una and some other guy and shows uh, the Red Cross Knight that Una is being unfaithful and unchaste. And so the Red Cross Knight is, uh, decides to leave and just flee. And then uh, Una wakes up the next morning and discovers him gone and uh, runs after him in some direction. Okay, good. Really good. I think you, the, I think you left out one important moment. Um, ben? Is it maybe you're talking about that after the like dragon's children eat her, I think they explode. Yeah, they start vomiting out books and papers. <laughs> yeah. um, that would and those books and papers would be all the errors that um, the, that um, error in her mazy den is producing. Um, what does Una think about Red Cross going in to fight error? She told him not to. She tells him not to. Um, and it seems that she turns out to be wrong. That is, she says, no, this is a bad idea. Um, and bad ideas generally when, it's a general principle of narrative, as you all know, but this is this is old as the hills. This isn't something that was invented recently. Um, it's a general principle of narrative that if one character says to another, I think this is a bad idea. You have to do it. Um, well, not only... You, it's Chekhov's loaded gun. Yeah, it's a loaded gun. You have to do it, but it's also a loaded gun, which is, if you do it successfully, um, the, then the question is, so why, was, why did that character say it was a bad idea? There has to be a reason it was a bad idea that'll come out later. Either, generally, it'll be a bad idea right away. That is, no, I'm going to go in there and it's going to be fine. Um, I think that's a bad idea. No, I insist. And then the smoke monster comes and kills him. Um... <laughs> But um, if it looks fine, I think this is a bad idea. No, I think it's going to be okay. It goes in, and it's all okay. Um, then you should have, as a reader in the back of your mind, but wait a second, there was a warning ignored that this was a bad idea. Um, what? When is that shoe going to drop? When is the bad idea part of that going to drop? Um, so the fact that Una says, don't do this, and Red Cross says, no, I will, um, that's something to keep in mind. Um, okay, Archimago, or Archimago, as um, you were calling it, it's probably pronounced Arch because it's an Italian name. Um, what do you think that name means? He's, if there's one villain in the Fairy Queen, it's him. 
I mean, one through line villain in the Fairy Queen. He's going to be um, in the Fairy Queen for quite a while. Um, Tony? Um, I think Mago is magic, so Arch Wizard. Okay, Arch Wizard, Arch Magician. Right. Um, like Mage, um, the Arc, the Archimage. Um, good, yeah. Um, it also has a double meaning because it could be he who is good at making images. Uh huh, good. So the Arch Image Maker. Um, arch, as an archangel, means um, the highest form of something. It also means the beginning of something, as in archaeology, which is um, the science or the study or the discourse of origins. Um, so archimago can also mean the source of images. The archmag archmagician, like an archangel um, or an arch archenemy, um, and also the source of images. Um, what does Archimago trade in? You said spirits, but what does he do with the spirits? What, what can he make them do? He makes them into images. He makes, yeah, they're images of what he wants them to be. How does he get those um, images? Where, where are the spells from? Books. Books, yeah. So he, oh, there's a book that he opens, and then Spencer, Spencer's narrative says, um, then, then he says, a few spells most horrible, let none them read, he says. I'm not even going to tell you what those spells are. If you read them, you would have this terrible power. Um, with those spells, he conjures up these spirits and images and manages to mess with Red Cross and with Una. Um, let none them read, he says. This is going to um, be one of several times where the question of, of whether something should be read or not read will come up in The Fairy Queen. Um, so, Archimago, he seems like this nice hermit who is being all helpful and everything, but it turns out that he is the enemy, the antagonist, the villain. Um, the figure who is um, set against what Red Cross and Una want to do. Um, do you remember from the letter to Raleigh what they want to do? What Red Cross's um, quest is? To slay the monster. To slay the monster? That's got Una's parents. That, that has... Had, or has. Has. Has, has um, imprisoned Una's parents. Um, so that is going to be the myth, um, as anyone, um, well, if you read the, if you read the letter to Raleigh, um, or if you know why the shield of England is a Red Cross, um, who does Red Cross, who will Red Cross turn out to be? Yeah. St. George. St. George. Um, do people know what George means in the, the root meaning of the word George, what it means in Latin and in Greek? Georgos? farmer. So George was a farmer who slew the dragon. Um, Virgil's, Virgil's book of poems called the Georgics are poems about farming. Um, they're actually really good. You may not think so, but they are. Um, Georgic in general is a genre which means about farming. Um, Georgia, I think, is named after King George, but is also um, a place for lots of farmland. 
Um, and I think the Georgia in Russia, do you know? It's certainly not named after King George. Um, I think it's good for farming. That's why it's called Georgia. It's, it, I don't know, I don't know where, how Georgia translated out of Gruzi, but that's what it is in Russian. And what does Gruzi mean? Georgian. <laughs> yeah, but what does it mean as a, if it were a common word, uh, uh, non-capitalized? Okay, I think it, it probably is the same root. It's you should look it up. Yeah. Um, so Saint George defeats the dragon, um, and that's what the quest of the Red Cross Knight is: is to defeat the dragon. Um, and yet he seems to defeat a dragon already in Canto One of the Fairy Queen, um, but he hasn't. That's not the dragon uh, that we have in mind. The dragon we have in mind is the dragon that he will, spoiler, defeat in Canto 12. Um, and it is in Canto 12 that he finally defeats the dragon, the dragon that has Una's parents in thrall. Um, that dragon is from the Book of Revelations. It's the dragon that the Scarlet Whore, the Whore of Babylon in Scarlet, rides on. Um, so who is like the Whore of Babylon in the first four cantos? A woman dressed in red and scarlet? Duessa. 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 Um, called Fidessa, but that's not her real name. Um, so what does Duessa mean, do you think? Duplicitous. Duplicitous, yeah. Du, due um, for two. Um, and Essa, what do you think? Just free associate? To be dual. Yeah. She has two beings, two essences. She isn't a simple, single thing. So it's one versus two is what Red Cross <clears throat> has to pick between. From uh, sum esse? Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, sum esse um, in Latin, where we get our word essence. Um, so she has, she is, she's a hypocrite. It's actually Archimago who first represents hypocrisy. But she's a hypocrite. Um, she um, is not what she seems. She is one thing for um, the outside world or for those whom she's trying to deceive and another thing um, in herself. Um, so it's not, it, it's not even that she has a hidden essence, um, which is the truth about her. You can't talk about the truth about Duessa because truth is all on Una's side, and Duessa is only non-truth. And therefore, you know, you would think, but this is the first problem with thinking allegorically. For Spencer, you would think that you can say something true about anything. You can say that it's true that God is good, and it's true that Satan is evil. But then, people might object metaphysicians, allegorists of various sorts might say, but Satan too, therefore, belongs to the realm of truth. And so he's not completely evil because truth also attaches to Satan and truth is good. So if you get into the kind of stoned logic of allegory, then what you have to try to do, and Spencer will always push this as far as he can, he loves pushing this, is to say, um, we, I don't even want to say that, that Duessa belongs to truth in the sense that she at least is consistently evil. Because then there would be truth about her, and that wouldn't make her evil enough if there were truth about her. 
So by giving her the name two essences, he's saying there isn't a single, a unique, an una truth about her. It's only una of, which, of whom you can say one thing. Of duessa, you can never say simply one thing. There isn't one truth about her. Um, she disguises herself, though, as whom? Fidesa. Fidesa. What does that mean? Truth. Constantly fidelity. Fidelity. Fidelis, faithful. Yes. So her essence is faithfulness or fidelity. Um, she's a faithful person. At least that's her disguised version. She's a faithful person. Um, and you can count on her. Um, so the essa part is the same. Um, and that's how you can keep track of her. But the due, the two is now turned into, is disguised as faithfulness. Um, okay, so Red Cross um, is fooled by Archimago. Uh, what happens then? Can someone do Canto 2? Just give a bare bones outline if you want. Yeah. Um, so he's wandering about with the dwarf and they come across a sans boy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the first of the Sands brothers. And Sands boy, like all the other Sands brothers, is clearly evil. So, of course, they uh, joust immediately. Uh, Sands boy is killed, but he does have a, uh, his, uh, his uh, lovely damsel that's by his side. And so uh, she starts sobbing, and my cross eye is like, Don't be dry, don't be sad, I'll take you in. <laughs> and, uh, so he takes a, she introduces herself as Podessa, but clearly she's not. And they walk go off together. And what do they meet? A tree. A tree. Oh, the tree. Okay, and so uh, the tree, I forget. Uh, it's very easy to forget trees. trees. No one notices trees, and yet. The <laughs> Red Cross Knight, like, hurts the tree, and the tree screams out, and Red Cross Knight is a little freaked out. As and, one might be. <laughs> and uh, Perduvio introduces himself. He was once a man, but now a tree. And he tells a story about how he and his uh, her maiden were traipsing across the plain when they came uh, when they were uh, taken in by another uh, woman. And she, like, competed with his original uh, uh, maiden, and she made her life repulsive, and this other man, Perdubia, wanted to kill her, but uh, Fidessa slash U.S. was like, no, no, don't do that. And so she turned her into a tree. Uh, and then, later on, uh, Perdubia found out that uh, Duessa was actually kind of gross and evil. And so Duessa turned him into a tree, now they're together forever. Let us stay on each other. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Duessa pretends to like faint, and Red Cross Knight is distracted by that, and that's how answer to uh, Yeah, because she doesn't want Red Cross thinking and worrying about this stuff. Um, turned into a tree and being together. Um, Ovid. 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 Who? Do you remember? Mira. No. I mean, Mira's turned into a tree, but not. she's not together with um, the person she loves. Oh, no, it was Baucis and Philemon. Yeah, Philemon and Baucis. Nice. Um, yeah, so it's an Ovidian story, which Spencer retells. It's also in Dante, people as trees. Anyone remember? Is it the, is it the suicides? The suicides, yeah. 
Um, so Spencer is actually getting that through Ariosto, um, but it's uh, it goes back to Dante and from Dante back to Ovid. If you don't know this because you didn't take Hume 10A with me, that's fine. It's just a couple of people here did. Um, so it's it's uh, uh, you can if you did you can see how things come together. Um, Fra Dubio, what would his name mean? How about the dubio part? Doubt. Yeah, dubious, not sure of the truth, um, and because he doubted whom he shouldn't have doubted, um, he got into a lot of trouble. Uh, Fra? Brother. Yeah, so he's basically brother doubt. Um, brother, son, sister, moon, and oh yeah, brother brother doubt. Uh, that treated. Um, but what is Friday 7? Sorry? What is the... What does Brianissa mean? The name of his uh, lover who got transformed next to him. Yeah, I guess I never really th thought hard about that. Um, seems just such a right name. Um, I don't know. Read the note. That's a good question. Um, I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's a good answer. Um, okay, so so brother doubt. Now here's a question for you. Why is um, Fradubio the first? person that um, to give a warning to give a true warning why does he show up let's put it this way why does he show up um, in Canto 2 and why that conversation obviously plot wise it helps us understand what's going on and we get a little we already have divergence of plot we know more than Red Cross does that's always interesting when an audience knows more than a character does we also know more than Una does Una doesn't know why Red Cross has abandoned her, and um, but we do. And we also know that Red Cross abandoned her because he was fooled by Archimago. We know the truth about Archimago. Um, but now Red Cross meets Fradubio, who tells us more. It's just very good narrative technique. It gives us backstory about Duessa. Now we learn a lot more about Duessa and know that, like Archimago, she's not to be trusted either. Um, however, we also know that she is Duessa, that Fidessa is Duessa, um, but Red Cross doesn't know that. So just as, as plot exposition, Spencer loves plots. He just loves them. They're more plots festooning the fairy queen mm -hmm. than, you know, really anything till Pynchon, probably. Um, the number of different plots that are just <laughs> going off in all directions at every moment. Um... But why does it make sense if you're thinking about this story, um, if you're thinking about the arrangement of episodes of this story as each episode being a commentary on the previous one? So let me repeat that, because that's an important principle in The Fairy Queen. Every episode is a commentary on the episode that has come before. Um, and what that means is that we're getting information that helps us keep our bearings about what's important thematically as well as characterologically as well as um, in terms of plot. All those things are always shedding light on, on stuff that's happened before. What light does the coming, does Red Cross running into Fradubio and hearing this story, what light should it shed for Red Cross on his own position? 
Here's another way of putting it. Let's do it in terms of analogies. Um, Fra Dubio is to Fra Lissa as Red Cross is to Una. Una. Good. Ben. Well, I mean, I'm. No, I was just thinking on both in both cases, there's sort of deception of image utilized in order to cause the yeah, and in both cases, what the hero does is he abandons his one true love and goes astray with Duessa. Um, in both cases, it is Duessa. Um, who is the knight who Red Cross has just defeated? Sansfoy. What does Sansfoy mean? Without faith. Without faith. What did Red Cross... Um, he meets Sansfoy. And why would he meet Sans Foy after, I'll make it easy for you, after, after losing faith Uno. in Una? Because he's now without faith. Because he's now mm -hmm. without faith. He's lost his faith in Una. And so who should show up but the faithless one? So always what's going to happen, especially in Book One of the Fairy Queen, um, where the principle is laid down, is any figure that Red Cross meets stands for himself at that juncture, stands for those elements within himself that he has to cope with. So he was faithless to Una, and so now he has to cope with the night of faithlessness. It's almost, there's a video game logic to this. Mm -hmm. It's a dream logic, but it's also a video game logic. I think Spencer was thinking about video games, not dreams. Um, <laughs> and the logic is, I mean, it really is lost. I mean, what isn't? But it really is that whatever, you know, whenever anyone hallucinates in Lost or whenever they, they you have the, their backstory and, and they go back into the past, it's always relevant, right? Um, and, you know, why is Echo thinking of, of, um, of, uh, of violence that, that's occurring um, in his past because he's about to have to deal with, with similar violence again or whatever? Um, Whatever happens in the Fairy Queen happens for a reason having to do with the struggle going on in the character's head, in the main character's head. That's an incredibly simplified way of putting it, and we're going to complicate this very, very shortly. But let's just notice then one thing. Una says, don't go fight with error. Red Cross says, no, I'm going to. Was that an error on Red Cross's part? Well, yes. By logic, it has to be, because if Red Cross goes and meets Error, that means he's in Error. He goes into Error's Wood. That must mean it's an error to go into Error's Wood. Error's Wood stands for being in Error, and if it, you go into Error's Wood, then it's an error to go into Error's Wood. Red Cross says, hooray, I defeated Error, he says in Error's Wood. Did he defeat Error? No. He made an error thinking that you could just defeat error once and for all. So the first thing that happens in, in, in Book One of the Fairy Queen is Red Cross erroneously believes that he has defeated error. Like Duessa, you, the error is so tremendous that he cannot truly say he's defeated error. No, error defeats him. What's the next thing he does? He makes an error about Una. Why? He loses faith. Then he meets Fradubio. Why Fradubio? His brother, the doubtful one, his, almost his twin, the person in doubt of someone he should not have doubted, in this case, 
Carlissa in Red Cross's case, Una. Okay, four more cantos. Um, it'll get faster. It also gets more exciting. Hard though that might be to believe, it does. And you can ask yourself and think and, and wonder to yourself,